This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. Matt, today we've got Thomas Beyer on the program. Thomas Beyer, president of Prestigious Properties. And yeah. it, this one doesn't disappoint. This one does not disappoint. Uh, 80 Lessons Learned is Thomas's new book, On the Road from 80,000 to 80 Million. And we should say that he is a developer, he is a real estate investor, and he literally went from $80,000 to 80 million through real estate investing in a very short period of time. That's right. I mean, uh, not all that long ago, he was working at IBM and he took the plunge over, well, the, over the course of about 20 years, I'd say, right. and, uh, and has really built something quite phenomenal. So stay tuned for that. It's phenomenal. And I'm halfway through this book. Are you? This is, uh, you know what? This is not only about investing. This has tons of useful investing advice. It also has uh, advice on how to pick a spouse. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. All I this mean, in 40 lessons deep. Yeah, I know. I'm 40 lessons deep. He talks about it's really, really useful stuff, though. I mean, how, how to grow a business, how to hire, how to choose partners. Uh, why, like, chapters called the cash flow myth. I mean, there's a lot of useful stuff in here, really compelling stuff. So check this book out. You can check it out. It is available on Amazon. Um, but also, you can just get in touch and we can connect you right to the source as well. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. The source being Amazon. <laughs> we'll send you a link. Um, but what else do we got for today, Matt? We, okay, so last week, we had on Larry Beasley. As uh, some of you may know, Vancouverism, his new book. Right. 
Go. Very, very strong reviews from our listeners. That, 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 was, that was for sure. And what we did was we had an autographed copy of Vancouverism by Mr. Larry Beasley himself. We said, if you review it on Google, the first five people that review it, one person is going to get that Hold book. Hold on, though. Not review the book. Review Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. That's right. Yeah, let's be clear. Yeah, don't go review Vancouverism until you get the book and read it. Sure. But in this case, you want to review Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. We have our first winner today. We do. Do we want to announce that right now? No, we're going to save that until the end. So you have to listen through the, the interview. Okay, good call. Yeah. So we have the first, out of the first five, we have a winner. We do. Now, but Matt, I, sorry, I gotta, I gotta cut you off here because here, here's, here's what I think. I, I've got an idea, and we've kind of already talked about this. So, um, what we're gonna do is we've bought several more books. We're not gonna disclose how many, but keep they, the reviews coming. Hold on, there's, there's several, and they're all signed. They're all signed. Larry likes this idea. Larry loves this idea, so he signed a bunch of books with a personal message in each book. You're going to be really excited about the personal it's, message. Because he doesn't know who you are yet. Well, this it's is the not thing. that personal. It's, it's pretty personalized. <laughs> For not knowing the individual, it's very personalized. We all know how bright Larry is. <laughs> um, so here's, here's, here's what we're going to do. Keep the reviews coming, and we're going to keep drawing from that group of people. So we're going to, every time we see a review, your name gets entered into the next draw, and we're, we've got a lot more books, signed copies, that we're giving away. So let's just be clear on how to do this. You... Google Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. On the right-hand side of Google, you're going to see photo of us. Yes. Directions to where our office is. And also <laughs> a thing that says reviews. Write a review right there. You'll be entered in. You're going to have a, an amazing copy of Vancouverism, which is both an amazing book to read and also an amazing book to have on your coffee table. And if you just end up reviewing us, that's that's great too because we really need your support and we appreciate your support and it helps us grow this podcast and continue to make this podcast. So we appreciate it in advance. But Matt, maybe we should cut to our great interview today with Thomas Beyer. This one does not disappoint like I said before. Enjoy guys. Okay, so we're here with Thomas Beyer, president of Prestigious Properties and Oliver Land Development Group. How are you doing, Thomas? Excellent, thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time today, Thomas. Can you start maybe by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like many Canadians, I am an immigrant to this fine country. I came here well over 30 years ago. And I'm actually by training a software engineer. So I started my career in, in software development and, and software technical marketing. And actually opened the software company as well with one of my colleagues in, who now lives in California in, a, in the mid-90s. And we were doing quite well after I left IBM in developed uh, software and sold consulting services in, in the U.S. mainly in, in the sort of booming pre Y2K and pre-internet phase and built Java applications for mainframe computers. And I looked into real estate um, probably in the late 90s to actually do something, but the, the, the trigger happened really at a, at a waterside cooler when I did my first, had my first job in Burnaby when I heard the, first, the, 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 the word bubble the first time. Right? It was about 1988, 1989, just about a year or two after the Expo 86 and all the money from Hong Kong started coming into Vancouver. Right. And people were talking about the bubble then. Right? Oh, imagine that, quarter million dollar 
Bangalore and Burnaby completely unaffordable. Like who can, have, you know, <laughs> price to income ratios, uh, blah, blah, blah. Same story we heard the, the last few years. And of course, that quarter million dollar bungalow in Burnaby in the late 80s today is probably 1.5 million, right? And will probably be in the two millions in the 2020s. So that's when the light, real estate light went on that I really should be doing something real estate because I was a tenant at the time and had a young family and our son was born here and didn't have much money. And and, and it was the bubble that got you excited? <laughs> no, but, but just the, the idea to... To, to look into real estate. And at this water site, basically, this, water, this, 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 this fountain, this, this uh, uh, water cooler, I talked to one of my colleagues. She was a software engineer as well, and, and she was of Asian descent. And she said, oh, yeah, and we, what, what are you doing? And she was a software engineer. And she said, oh, yeah, we, we, you know, my family and, and I, we bought, we bought 10 bungalows in Burnaby. And, and I figured, oh, wow, these bungalows all went up over $100,000, right, the last year or two years, right? So she made about a million dollars that year, last year or two. So I figured, what does she know that I don't? <laughs> and that's when the whole thing started to, to, you know, to gel, perhaps. And I realized I got to maybe look into real estate as well. And then we moved back to Germany. I worked for IBM there for a few years. I came back here. Took a course, finally, in, in Toronto with uh, Raymond Aaron. Uh, he's still, I think, running around and uh, promoting uh, monthly mentor groups and, and some events. He had a, a nice monthly mentor group, which I joined. And I started to look into, into real estate at the time, and, and, and then we moved to Calgary, and I ended up actually buying a, a, a condo in 1997. Um, and that condo was $80,000. And that's why when I wrote my book a few years ago called uh, 80 Lessons Learned on the Road from 80000 to $80 million, the first 80000 was that condo in Calgary, which I held for maybe five or six years, and then eventually sold it for like hundred fifty, hundred seventy thousand dollars, and then bought another condo in, in Edmonton. I still own that today. It's I paid also eighty thousand. It's probably worth hundred twenty, hundred thirty today. Didn't do all that great, but your mortgages pay down. And right. then I started syndicating buildings in two thousand. Um, I bought my first building then and started syndicating in two thousand one, two thousand two, because I realized a bit like. Um, Flour or, or sugar, if you and I buy a pound of sugar, a pound of flour, we pay a certain price. But if you're a baker and you buy a 100-pound sack, you tend to buy at a different price, probably maybe half. Right? So similar with buildings, you buy the whole building, you pay less per unit than if you buy just one condo. So at the time when I bought my condos, around 80000 a unit. Buildings in Edmonton were going for around thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a unit. So that's when I started to buy a building, which was the year 2000, about a 15-unit building for $570,000. And these were purpose-built rental? Like these were existing, rental existing average-looking, basic boxes. Right? Yeah. 15 units. It's, it's a three-story building with five units of floor. Right? But you could sell them individually? No, no, I bought the oh, whole building. The whole building. And I did, we later did some condo conversions. I did one, actually, in Camrose, which is close to, to Edmonton. Um, but we didn't, in the end, do a condo conversion at, at scale like other people, like IPG or Twenty Twenty did at the time. Mm -hmm. We just basically bought the buildings and just held them. Right. So it sounds like from 1988 through 2000 was kind of a steep learning curve. Uh, yes, yeah, steep in regards very, to, very to real estate. Did did you stop doing software development in the year 2000, or were you? Was this kind of a side? project or, or when did that transition to kind of full-time real estate investing take place well to do real estate full-time you got to have a 
sizable asset space, unless you're a realtor. I mean, real estate is obviously a, a fascinating industry with a lot of aspects to it. I mean, there's the lending aspect, and there's the construction aspect, and there's the color design aspect, and there's the real estate brokerage aspect or the legal aspect. If you want to be a real estate lawyer, absolutely, that's a business you want to be in, perhaps, or a, a, a realtor. Um, but if you want to live off the cash flow of the asset, you got to have a large number of, of assets. So it's really not a full-time business unless you inherit a lot of money, maybe right. from, from your parents or from your rich aunt. Um, you, you start usually with, with one unit, and you cannot live on one unit unless it's a very large building. right? And, and to buy a large building, then certainly today you need several million dollars usually, which the average person doesn't have. So at the time I had 20,000 bucks, yeah, you buy a condo for eight eight hundred. Uh, sorry, for eighty, twenty percent, twenty five percent down, sixty thousand dollar mortgage. Cash flow is basically non existent. Fifty bucks a month, maybe hundred bucks. That doesn't make you rich, right? But it 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 sets a stage for the second condo and the third condo and then maybe a smaller fourplex or an eightplex or in my case a fifteenplex or twentyplex. And once you have a few of those, well, at some point then you can actually either quit your job or certainly downsize your job. So no, I did not quit my job until about 2004. We were running a software company and a software sales company on behalf of IBM as an IBM business partner till about 2004 through the whole Y2K hype and the, the internet bubble and crash and also the euro conversion, which was actually in 2001. There was a lot of demand for software development because the, the Europeans moved to the euro. There was the whole Y2K to create conversion and internet started all coming together. So as one big software and development bubble in the late 90s to the early 2000s, there was a lot of activity going on. And we were writing that basically really hard until about 2004 when we, I finally did real estate full-time. But by that time, our asset base was about $20 million already. So just thinking um, about how you transitioned, so the first thing you did was you went and got a mentor, it sounds like. N- I certainly, as I said, the light bulb went on in Burnaby in the late 80s. It took me at least another five years to finally take a course, like a weekend course with Raymond Ayers, where he laid out how to make a million dollars by buying townhouses, basically. And I thought, that's ridiculous. I can make a million bucks in a bunch of townhouses. But he was actually right in his, in his philosophy and in his, in his approach by buying old and, all the ugly townhouses and, and fixing them up and improve the rent roll and then either refinance them or sell them. And he laid out a sort of plan to do that over five or six years, and, and that's what I followed. I didn't have a mentor per se. I, I'm obviously, as you as you as you buy condos and later buildings, you meet people, you meet realtors, you meet property managers, and every person you meet, you can learn something from it. I didn't have a formal mentor, no. Can we maybe talk uh, just kind of what you're doing today now in real estate? And and so we we kind of know the early days of of how you got your start. How have you transitioned, and and what is your relationship with real estate today? Well, I started with my with my own money first. So certainly, as an advice to your listeners, is that you want to start with your own money and buy a few units, and and then you can show a track record to people who have money and and like the idea of owning real estate, but maybe don't have the time or the wherewithal to spend the time. So it takes a significant amount of effort and time to look for assets, be it townhouses or condos or buildings or industrial warehouses, whatever your shtick is. It takes some expertise, actually, and some time to, to become reasonably good at it. So it took me probably at least five years to know what I'm doing in the, in the multifamily space. And by about 2002, 2003, I started syndicating these buildings because now I had... 
I could tell a story. So look, I bought this building for 570, I sold it for 750, I bought this building for 800,000, sold for a million. Here's my story, here's a number, here's a spreadsheet, here's some pictures. Then you can invite others to, to co-invest with you. So I started that from about 2003, 2004, and then on a larger scale with offering memorandums and syndications and, and later exam market dealers uh, till about 2014, 2015. And then at the time I stopped, I just didn't want to do any, didn't go any, didn't want to go any bigger because it's, you know, once you have, you know, 10 salespeople and, and three asset managers and, and we had at the time at the peak over $100 million in assets, it's now all of a sudden more than a full-time job. That wasn't actually the plan. I just wanted to have a good life actually and, and work less, <laughs> not more. So I realized I just want to, you know, scale back a bit and we ended up selling a bunch of assets. We still own about $60 million worth of assets today. But we've, I mean, I've certainly scaled back from the peak in 2014, 2015 to today. So was that a, a bunch of questions here? But one is, um, I'm kind of interested in, it seems like you've ridden out a lot of, you've ridden through a couple of real estate cycles and a couple of bubbles, whether it be in tech or, or right. you know, the financial uh, uh, crisis in 2008. And you, you sold a bunch of stuff in, in 2014, 2015. It sounds like almost for personal reasons as opposed to market conditions. Uh, I'm curious to get your take on where we are now. Well, I mean, real estate is, is always in demand, right? People always move around, right? People have babies, people die, people grow up, right? And, and certainly Canada as an immigration country will always have demand for real estate because people come to Canada like me to improve their life and, and the willing and able and hardworking will be able to afford a condo or a house or whatever they aspire to. The issue, I think, specifically in, in Toronto, which I don't know much about, but, but Vancouver, is that the prices have gone up so much, so fast over the last, let's say, 10 years that it has become unaffordable for the average person and even the average high-income earner to buy a house in, in Point Grey for three or four million dollars. And it's not a wow house right it's it's a it's an average box and we've seen certainly a retraction now the last maybe two years and i think we're going to see a further retraction for another year or two modest retraction you know i think vancouver will always be an attractive city to live in and that's why i live here but i but i knew that you need money to buy in vancouver right um and bc not only stands for brick big clouds it also stands for bring cash <laughs> and, and so, do, to, 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 clouds is one I haven't heard. <laughs> and to be able to to afford, a, you know, a decent condo, a decent house, or half a duplex, or a townhouse in in the Vancouver area, you gotta use, you gotta have some cash. And either you bring it yourself, or maybe you have rich parents who can give you some. Right? I didn't have rich parents. I had to make it myself. I came with less than a thousand bucks to Canada. Um, but I knew I wanted to live in Vancouver because I thought this is a fascinating city. But I also knew to live in a decent place, you gotta have have some, some money and that happened actually in 07 when we sold our very large building in, in Edmonton for a sizable gain all of a sudden I had actually some money to to, uh, to afford a decent condo and this is where we're doing the interview right now it's a decent condo <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's a <laughs> that's the understatement of the year man. Uh, and, uh, and of course in hindsight I should have sold everything in Edmonton because 20, 20, 2007 actually was the peak probably of the market it retracted a fair amount till about 2010 and then uh, came up back to maybe 2014 and then ever since has been going down you know and, and we 
probably at the bottom right now in, in, in Alberta. And now with Jason Kenney's election, we might see a bit of an uptick. But we'll, we, we shall see with the election here in the fall. There's a good chance that we're going to see a, a left-wing, socialist, pink, uh, green plus NDP plus liberal alliance, a bit like we see in BC right now. And you're going to see a full frontal assault on the oil business in Canada. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not that bullish at the moment on Alberta until we see some, some clarity in the pipelines and the investment climate, because a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines right now and wondering what's happening. And so many protests, as you know, here in BC, even you know, against the pipeline. And it's just unfortunate because we are obviously a major energy exporter and could do so much better. I mean, the US doubled the oil production in the last 10 years from 5 to 10 million barrels, and we sort of sidelined, and we could do a lot better. Um, so I think once we see a bit more political will here, the province could do better. But I think the political will at the moment is not there. In fact, there's a del- deliberate attempt to suppress house prices and you know take take from the average or above average people and try to reduce redistribute at the moment. Right. So it sounds like you think there's a a, a year, two, three years here of kind of stable or sliding prices. Uh, before the market kind of gets back on its feet. Uh, in a market like this, like what does a deal look like for you? Like if you're out searching, and I know you said it took kind of five years, especially in multifamily, to figure out kind of what does a deal look like. Right. Like if you're in a, in a short amount of time here, can you, what does a deal look like? Well, well, a deal in the end is always a function of price, right? Um, because in any market there is deals to be had, but it's a function of price. And, and whenever you buy a used asset, and most buildings you buy are used, they have wards on them, you, you need to become a ward meister, a ward assessor, right? <laughs> how, how big is the ward? <laughs> like, how big is the problem, right? Um, because you buy a building, and as soon as the building's occupied, there is, it, it starts to deteriorate. The roof starts to leak, the windows you know, have cracks, the tenants wear, you know, create wear and tear on the building, the carpets and the, and the laundry machines and the pipes. Um, so you got to do a, a thorough inspection of the building um, and, and look at the rent rolls and, and the upside potential for rent. And that certainly is muted in BC because we have uh, fairly stringent rent controls now, uh, now 2.5%, which used to be better, 4.5%. It was actually a decent rent control law. Now it's 2.5%, which is by and large below cost increases. So it's tough to get rental upside through natural uh, evolution of rents. you got to basically upgrade and that's also tough right now. So there is certainly opportunity in, on Vancouver Island, I think, and maybe the Okanagan, because that's, those prices haven't risen to the point of, of frothiness. We see it sort of in Burnaby today or New West or, or, or Vancouver. Um, but even there, the prices are like Kamloops, Vernon, now like over 100000 a unit, 120000 a unit, and rents might be six, 800 bucks. It, it's the, the, the ratio is, is tight. So it's it's really tough to find good deals, I think, right now in BC and, and uh, also Alberta. Um, I'm looking at Texas again, um, and that's why I started doing development, because development with the right partner and in the right market will always be a profitable business if you do it well. So I'm doing that right now in, in Okanagan and Oliver specifically. And uh, that, But that exists also in many other markets. I mean, if you know what you're doing in Burnaby, you can build high-rises in Burnaby uh, and make money, but it's, that's not what I'm doing, and it takes a lot of expertise, obviously, and a lot of money, right? Millions, tens of millions of dollars sometimes, which is beyond my sort of my uh, check-writing capability. So I'm doing smaller affordable housing projects, 
And I'm certainly, but I'm still certainly looking at multifamily, but I'm looking at Texas right now because Texas has no rent control laws, a bit like Alberta, and has a pro-business attitude, and you can still find sizable assets where you can add value. Uh, you buy something for sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a unit, and maybe spend ten, fifteen thousand a unit in upgrades, and then get the value up by twenty or thirty thousand bucks a unit. That is still possible in, in markets like Texas, where we had a decent presence. It, that is very tough right now in BC and, and also Alberta. In thinking about Texas and and your approach to investing, kind of um, in in different markets, how do you how do you start learning a market? And then also as a follow-up question, what are some of the metrics that you consider when investing in a market? Well, markets can be very sizable. And it, it in the end depends on the size of your, top, of your pocketbook, right? Um, like people all want to invest in the U.S. Well, U.S. is so large, or even Texas. It's, it's a, Texas is the biggest Canada. It's like 34, 35 million people. Um, you can't specialize even in Texas or even in, in Dallas, for that matter. It's such a like Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex is over 10 million people. Right? It's huge. So you, you, you pick a, a town or a city or a metroplex where you think there's upside and there's ample statistics out there and, and ample secondary research to look at, at, at growth rates and GDP growth and immigration that exists to, to, for almost any market. So there are certainly towns... I think that the top, the, the, the out of the top ten growth towns in the U.S., I think four were in Texas, for example. Right? right. So you pick one of the four. Right. It doesn't matter whether you go to Houston or San Antonio, or Austin or Dallas. Doesn't matter. You just pick one. You can't be in all four. It's just way too big. So you pick one, and let's say you want to invest in Houston as one example. While well, you you do some research, you look at what's available for sale, and then at some point you go down there and fly, and fly there and spend several weeks you know, maybe several two, three day trips to research the specific submarkets and or specific buildings. And that is the same whether you go to Atlanta or Florida or Kamloops or, or Algeria for that matter, or Berlin, because I was thinking of buying in Berlin where I was born. Um, and in hindsight, I should have bought in Berlin because the market has doubled in the last right. six or seven years, but I ended up, did not pull the plug, or they did some fair amount of research about seven, eight years ago. But any market you can find local realtors, local property managers, local uh, statistics-oriented uh, companies who help you, help you with, with numbers. You spend some time on that, and, and the numbers will then tell you the story. And that exists also certainly for Nanaimo or for Kamloops or for Vernon. You know, not maybe to the depth to, to perhaps Dallas because it's much bigger. Right. But, sure. But there's more inventory. I mean, you go to a market like Houston or Dallas, there's much more inventory than if you go to, let's say, Nanaimo. I want to buy a building in Nanaimo while there's very little for sale. There might be one building or two buildings for sale this year. That's it. And if both are overpriced, well, then there's no deal to be had, right? Although maybe I like Nanaimo per se, but if they want 160000 a unit and I think it's worth 120000 a unit for the metrics, then there's no deal to be had. And that's the case by and large for most of BC right now, that uh, that there's such little inventory. Mm. And, and I think like a lot of our listeners are probably hear that, okay, they want 160K uh, a unit, you think it's worth 120. Like what exactly, can you walk us through what you're looking at in that process to, to establish that, hey, this is overpriced? Uh, yeah, again, you, you look at the current Rental, and in the end, you, you're buying a cash machine, right? You 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 buy a building, 
which has income generation potential and and there's, but there's expenses. So you got you got to understand the, the the income potential. I mean, first of all, the as is poten- as is numbers, but also the potential. And you got to look at expenses. So once you're in the business and you've been in the business for a while, you know what the expenses ought to be and mm-hmm. not what the realtor enhanced performance show you. Because the, the realtors want to sell the building, they show usually very deflated expense numbers. But you know, in reality, the utility bill is higher, and guess what? The property tax is actually higher, and the management fees will be higher, and the vacancies will be higher, and all of a sudden the numbers in the real world look not as sexy as the realtor wants you to believe they are. So once you've been in business for a long time, like I've been for like 15 years now or so, you know that what the numbers are, plus or minus 3 or 4% perhaps, right? And based on these numbers, you can say, well, this building is worth X to me, right? Based on the NOI or the net operating income and the projections, I can say, well, I can pay up to X, for this, right? And then the, the other function is, is the mortgage, right? So let's say I pay 150000 bucks a unit, but the bank thinks, well, based on this, we give you only a 60% loan-to-value mortgage. Well, now you're going to come up with 40% loan-to-value. So that means you can borrow 90000 but you're going to put 60000 bucks in cash for, for a unit, which is 150000 bucks a unit. Yeah. So now let's say it's a 10-plex. You're going to need 600000 bucks close plus some closing costs and staying power so now you might need seven thousand dollars to close that building all of a sudden you run the numbers oh my god the return is really low right right but you run the same numbers on let's say 140,000 bucks or 135,000 bucks a unit all of a sudden the numbers make sense the issue is often the building is not for sale at that price so you think yeah i'm willing to pay you 135,000 and the seller says nope 150,000 and not a nickel less so you often come into these no deal situations uh, and that's i've I've come across that many, many times, obviously, over my career, and that's certainly the case today, especially in British Columbia and in many so-called hot markets like Victoria and Nanaimo or Kamloops or Vernon or Burnaby in the West. They're all good markets per se, but, but the price often – there's a disconnect between reality and what the seller wants. So, so, Thomas, it sounds like you're very hands-on when you're looking at these deals or potential deals. Who do you include in your team, and also how do you go about – building a team if you're if you're looking in all in different markets well when we were sort of in our heydays we were raising five to ten million dollars a year we we had i had a, a partner who was a main his main job was acquisition so we would we would pick certain markets together we would say we want to look at edmonton or we want to look in calgary or we want to look in Kelowna, let's say and we would look there we would know every building which was for sale let's say over let's say at 12 plex so every building we which would is, is for sale we would see because realtors who sell buildings know who the buyers are or potential buyers are, and we were certainly on their list, right? And they know that this buyer doesn't want to buy anything below 80 units because it's a big REIT, and this guy cannot afford more than 15 units, so and now it's, let's say, it's a 30-unit building. Well, there's only a certain number of buyers which are actually interested in that kind of building. So we would be on that list of realtors, and you want to be on a list of multiple realtors because in, in most markets there's multiple realtors, and you want to know all the key players if you play in that market. So if you if you want to focus, let's say, on Houston as an example, or on Dallas or on Kamloops, you've got to understand the, the local players, i.e. realtors or firms who are active in that market, and, and go to conferences and meet them and have a coffee and look at some buildings with them. And after a while, you, you figure out, okay, this guy, he is always you know, selling you overpriced stuff, but this guy really knows what he's talking about. And all of a sudden, you, you build a team of, of trustworthy local realtors. 
and or property managers, because at some point, once you actually pull the trigger to buy, you have usually two or three months before closing, someone needs to manage the building. And that's usually a local property management firm. And, and are you constantly refining your process as you're, as you're moving along and continuing to invest in, in these markets? Yeah, I mean, like any, like any system, you at some point are close to optimum, right? You can, there's always refinement possible, obviously, but, right. but a lot of metrics are transferable. So let's say you want to shoot me into Atlanta, as, as an example. I've never been to Atlanta, I think once, like 30 years ago with IBM. I know nothing about Atlanta, but if let's say I want to buy in Atlanta, you know, probably within a few weeks I would have a team in place to know I could comfortably buy something in Atlanta if if I wanted to go there as an example, right? So once you have knowledge about other markets and a certain asset type, you can then transfer that knowledge to other markets. Now, you want me to buy a hotel in France? Well, very difficult. I don't speak French. I know nothing about hotels, and I know nothing about you know France or sure. certain markets on the hotel business. You wouldn't want to work with me on, on buying a hotel in France. And I'm not saying that's a bad business, but it's probably a good business if you know what they're doing. But every business, be it hotels or be it industrial warehouses or be it retail malls or be it office buildings, has their own little expertise and metrics. So I could not readily assess an office building in Kamloops, right? Although that might be a good investment. But I can assess an apartment building in Atlanta really well if I had to, right? So you take your knowledge base. Um, of a domain that's in this case multifamily apartment buildings um, and you can take that into another market it's more difficult to take that knowledge into another asset class although things are similar right? so we ended up for example buying a number of mobile home parks mobile home parks are not dissimilar to multifamily in fact I think in hindsight they're actually better you get a more consistent cash flow lower vacancies and, and much more stable expenses so we ended up actually over the last uh, four or five years bought uh, about uh, five mobile home parks in Alberta and, uh, and BC. So we're still looking for that. You get somewhat better uh, cap rates and somewhat better numbers. But again, also very, very few for sale. And, I was going to say often, few and far between, I'd imagine. And also overpriced and often priced on developed land. But we've sort of branched out from multifamily into mobile home parks. Now if you go, let's say, into office or retail or industrial warehouses – nothing wrong with that, all these asset classes. It, again, is a bigger step, I think, bigger learning curve now, right, from one asset class to another. Mm-hmm. So, so, Thomas, you've written the book 80 Lessons Learned on the Road from 80,000 to 80 Million. Um, it's, it's actually the way you've structured it is, is really interesting in just here's lesson one, here's lesson two, kind of bite-sized, really readable lessons What's your biggest mistake you've made uh, in real estate? Oh, there's many mistakes because, I mean, obviously as you, as you go through life and as you grow as a person, you, you look at opportunities and only in hindsight do you realize that was a mistake. The biggest mistake probably was to buy too much in Alberta, uh, especially after 2010, the market was a bit, there was a slight rise from 2010 to 2014, but we ended up buying quite a few assets. Um, and of course, the market sidelined and went down significantly from 2014 till, till today. And in hindsight, we should have used all that money and moved, for example, to a market like Texas. Indeed. So that, that was certainly a big mistake that we probably were overexposed to Alberta and, and, and underexposed to, at that, that, at that time, you know, being at par with the US, Canadian dollar wise, in 2010, 2011. 
we could have done really well in Texas as opposed to let's say Alberta. That's why the biggest mistake. Do, do you think just in thinking of that mistake is the is the lesson from that um, kind of not not being diversified enough or not reading certain signs? Like if you could go back, do you think you'd? Is there signs that you missed or or in that like missing that the market was going to turn or or playing the currency or you know do you, do you understand what I mean? Yeah. One, one always knows in, knows in hindsight that was really stupid. I should have not done that. And I should have seen that signal. In hindsight, one always sees it clearly. Yeah. It's, it's not so obvious at the time. So at the time, oil was booming. Alberta was good. And then the NDP got elected and oil started crashing. And so the combination of, of this assault by the NDP and socialists and government are never good for business, in my opinion. And then, of course, oil going down um, and the liberals being elected on, on a federal level. Those, this combination didn't do well for Alberta. Um, and that was at the time maybe not visible. Now, if you see it, obviously. And right. in Texas, the opposite, you know, Trump got elected and cut the business regulations and oil went up again and, and, and Texas had lots of immigration. So Texas, just the opposite happened, actually. Right. And uh, again, hindsight maybe would have been obvious. Um, by the time, sort of 2012 to 2014, it wasn't quite visible. So, so Thomas, uh, maybe in keeping in the same line as uh, as Matt's earlier question about the eighty lessons learned, do you have some other lessons that that you from the book that you care to highlight, like some of your favorites, maybe? Oh, that, I mean, there's many lessons. I mean, one is certainly to pick the right partner if if you if you partner with people, because both in life as you get married, perhaps, or have a serious partnership, or if you go into business. Um, so in Oliver, for example, I'm digging out of a mess with a previous partner who didn't quite deliver as perhaps envisioned together. Um, but again, that's also tough um, to assess with foresight, right? But, but I'm looking for three things with partners. Uh, one is, do you trust the guy, i.e. is the person honest? And you can assess that by talking to other people about this person. Uh, the other one is, do you respect the person? I.e., does he have domain knowledge? So if you partner with someone to raise money or someone who is a great a construction manager, perhaps, because he wants to be a partner in, in rehabbing some buildings or some houses, has he done that in that space? And is he trust, is, is he, res, you know, do you respect his domain knowledge, right? Or you want to open a restaurant? Does the guy know about the restaurant business? Mm-hmm. And the third aspect is, do you like the guy? Can you can you sit in a car with this guy for three hours or have dinner and, and, and enjoy that, actually, as opposed to, oh, my God, I have to drive now to to, the, to Kelowna with this guy and sit in this car for three or four hours. And, you know, so, 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 I'm look, so if you partner with someone, do you trust the person, do you respect the person, and do you like the person? So that's, I think, three questions to ask for a partner um, in, in a business venture. Uh, the other lesson is perhaps, and why I still like multifamily or, or even like I still own a few houses and condos and, and mobile home parks, um, is the, 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 the mortgage always gets paid down, right? Every, I mean, life is unpredictable. Uh, we don't know what the world will look like in a year or what rents will be in a year or what, what party gets elected in a year. What I do know is people have to live somewhere and people are willing to pay a certain price for a rental unit. And every market has their own metrics. So you pay obviously more for a one-bedroom apartment in, in Vancouver than in Burnaby than in Vernon, right? But once you know the numbers, you can make some some rough assessments about the market. And they don't fluctuate a lot unless there's a major downturn in the economy or a mill closes down and half the people get, get unemployed. But 
Rents don't fluctuate all that much. They might go up 2 3 4%, sometimes more. They might go down a little bit. Like we have in Alberta, lots of vacancies. But what I do now is, if I get a mortgage today, I can look at the amortization schedule of that mortgage for the next five years, and I know exactly what the mortgage will be in five years. That I know. And it's, guess what? It's lower than today. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's about 15% lower in the current interest rate environment. I can bank on that. I can almost take that to the bank, as I say. So if I buy an asset and it's flat, and we had some certainly some flat markets in Alberta and maybe in BC now the next two or three years, you still make money as long as you can be at least cash flow neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you have some positive cash flow, but one of the big lessons is that if you have cash-flowing assets or at least break-even assets, you will make money. You come out okay. And that certainly saved our bacon in Alberta the last few years because our mortgages are much lower, even in buildings where their value might have dropped 5 or 10%. In the end, the mortgage has still come down more than that, and we didn't lose maybe as much money as we could have. So, so I certainly, I mean, I still like, therefore, income-producing assets especially you know, multifamily or, or, or duplexes, townhouses, or mobile home parks, where there is a, a strong demand. And so I call, it, I call that affordable housing, right? Because we're providing affordable housing. We're not renting luxury condos at you know, two or 3,000 bucks a month. So an average, let's say, uh, two-bedroom in Eben might be 1,100 bucks, right? That, that's very affordable. Kind of bread and butter, yeah. not the sexy investments, but the bread and butter investments yeah. that produce. And if you sit on it long enough, you 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 do uh, you do get wealthy off that, right? And so I call this so, so I liken real estate to a three course meal. There's the there's the appetizer, which is the which is the cash flow, which sometimes is there, but sometimes it's not. You have to reinvest it. But then it's the main course. The main course is the the mortgage paydown. So like my schnitzel, you know, and, and uh, every month the mortgage gets paid down. And then every so often there's a dessert, which is the capital appreciation. And, and you know, in, in many markets, over time, market tends to go up with at least inflation, 2 3% a year. So you, you hold a building for five years, it's going to be worth usually at least 10% more. And in, in, in some markets, sometimes 20 30 40% more. And that's a dessert. And so you take the, the combination of the three-course meal, you tend to come out okay. That's a that's great. That's great. Vancouverites have been getting fat from dessert here for lots. <laughs> right, and now the dessert has been taken off. But but if you but if you still keep your main course, I you own a condo somewhere or some older building, older condo, and it and it's the tenant who pays on your mortgage, right, and, and not you. So sure. therefore, as long as you can can hang hang in there, you will come out okay in most cases. Do you have any hard and fast rules about like the will you buy something that's cash flow neutral and or will you subsidize? investments every once in a while if it if it really makes sense yeah, yeah absolutely i mean you 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 need to take a, probably at least a five-year view and sometimes maybe even a 10-year view because like in bc for example we pay a very high uh, land transfer tax which is not the case for example in alberta so therefore buying real estate has high transaction costs right there's realtor fees there's lawyer, legal fees there's inspection cost appraisals you know mortgage commitment fees land transfer taxes so sometimes even a five-year hold is too short and as fees on exodus as well. So you take a five-year view or 10-year view and make some assumptions about the world. What will this building or this condo look like in 10 years? Is it worth more? Is it worth about the same? And you can build, run some scenarios on your on your spreadsheet. And you know, obviously, if the world falls apart, yeah, we have a major disease outbreak and half the population in Vancouver dies, guess what? The market will collapse. But barring any sort of natural catastrophes, 
or earthquakes or you know, some of those disasters, a meteor hitting, you know, 15 buildings and all get destroyed. I mean, I can imagine all sorts of negative scenarios, but assuming a normal world with, especially in Canada, an immigration of about 1% and more so actually in, in the lower mainland, in many cases you will come out okay. So therefore, I, I think that that whole downturn right now in Vancouver will be short-lived. And it's basically government-induced and tax-induced. But there's strong demand. People want to live here. And I think apparently 70% of Canadians want to retire in British Columbia because it is the only fair-weather province, right? And specifically Vancouver Island and Okanagan, which where the prices aren't quite as high as the lower mainland, will see demand, I think, for the next several decades. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you buy anything in, 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 in Okanagan or Vancouver Island in, in any at least decent-sized urban center, be it Campbell River or be it Comox or be it Langford or be it uh, Vernon or Kamloops, you'll, be, you'll, do, you'll do okay, as long as you can hold, right? And, and therefore, it's okay to maybe subsidize in the beginning for a year or two, I mean, but you, you need that cash, obviously, some, from somewhere, right? So you can't feed 10 properties a thousand bucks a month forever, right? You can maybe do two or three of those, and then hopefully at some point you come out okay, right? fascinating stuff i feel like there's one question that i that i that we didn't have planned but is worth asking just almost as a story with a lot of uh pre-sales completing over the next couple years and a lot of people uneasy about what's going to happen assignments are people going to get the financing to complete all of these things uh taking place in in vancouver you bought this place pre-sale that we're sitting in right now, and you actually bought the place you were saying below first, and it was at the end after the financial crisis of 2008 when things were a little tricky in the in with completions that you kind of upgraded to this amazing space. Can you kind of walk us through that that uh, that storyline because it's an interesting one, kind of renegotiating with the developer and everything else. Well, we, the condo we live in is, is, is at UBC. Uh, I didn't know at the time because I, I didn't know that UBC is actually separate from Vancouver. I thought we bought, we bought a, a piece of property on the endowment lands, which is actually across the street. But we are actually not in the endowment <laughs> lands. So I figured I learned all these things uh, over, over, the, over the years. Um, we looked at this condo when we still lived in Alberta, in Canmore, in, in, in 07, uh, and as I mentioned, we had just sold that big building, had some money, and wanted to maybe buy a second place somewhere. And our kids had, were about to leave the house. We could downsize the, the house in Canmore. So we saw this ad in the paper. I said, oh, this is, looks like a great condo or building. Let's, let's fly out and have a look at it. And in 07, the market was really moving fast, like we maybe had two or three years ago. The market was really moving quickly. So you got to make a decision fast, right? And sometimes maybe you, you even overpay. Uh, you roll the clock forward two years, and we had this big financial crisis, 08, 09, and many buyers of this condo complex could not close because they lost, presumably, a bunch of money in the stock market. And I think the developer himself got squeezed by the banks because many developments are behind schedule, and, and all of a sudden the mortgage had to be extended, and the bank manager said, you know what, you're not extending your mortgage. <laughs> and so all of a sudden he was a very, desp- a very motivated seller, right? So we were able to negotiate an upgrade essentially from the, from the smaller condo to this nice condo here at a very modest increase in price. 
And today the price is probably something like 50% higher because condos haven't gone up quite as much as, as, as houses. So in hindsight, maybe you should have bought a house in Dunbar instead because Dunbar prices probably doubled and condos maybe went up only 50%. But um, sometimes timing is is in your favor, right? But but you often don't know that. You, you and maybe the lesson is you got to step up to the to the bat and start batting, and every so often you get a home run, and say, "Wow, look at this! Wow, I get a home run!" Yeah, but you ought to have a lot of miss, misses as well. But you got to be at the plate and swing and try to hit the ball, and you're gonna miss the ball several times. But every so often there's a home run. But if you never try, never you never write an offer, you never actually buy anything. You you can't win. I mean, any property you buy, you have to write an offer. Right, right. Uh, and and therefore. You know, I want to encourage your listeners to, if they're sitting on a fence, at least write the offer and then then make a decision because if you write an offer, it, it is usually conditional. It's an option to purchase, but it's an obligation to sell. So it puts you as the potential buyer as, an, as a slight advantage because you have the option to walk away. If you find something or you can't get the financing or you realize maybe I paid too much money, the seller cannot. He must sell to you. He cannot waive conditions in most cases. So uh, uh, writing an offer is, as I mentioned, is always an option to purchase, but an obligation to sell. So that's, in, in, especially right now where the market is soft, just write some low offers. So they're asking 1.8 million. We'll write an offer for 1.3. See what happens. Yeah. And yes, 10 out of 11 times they will say no, but maybe one or 11 times they will say, okay, I'll take it. Or maybe it's 1.4. Yeah, and you know you get a good deal all of a sudden, right? And and then you look back five years and say, "Oh my God, I, I own this. I own this property now worth two million. I paid only one point four for it." Yeah, you know. And and in the case of the when you completed on the presale, you literally you had your deposits in for one unit, and you went back at the last minute and said, "Actually, I don't want this one. I want that one." And and you were able to because you don't hear about that that type well, of. Well, we we also had we also had. Probably the right to walk away because the, the the seller changed the disclosure document, which gives you the right to to walk away because they usually have to come to you and say, "Hey, I changed the disclosure documents. Can you please initial this and acknowledge that I changed it?" And because he changed the contract essentially on you, right? And he didn't do that, and he had all of a sudden quite a few more units for sale. So all of a sudden, the seller was actually motivated because he had to presumably get a bunch of money to pay off his mortgage, right? Right, right. And uh, as it turned out, we, we were probably the second or third person to move into the building. It's about 75 units in the building. And it took almost a year for the building to be full. In fact, he lives now upstairs, uh, has a really nice unit. He didn't finish his own unit until probably a year and a half later because it was essentially a shell or nothing in the unit. I was up there many times when it was vacant. And uh, I've been there also afterwards when he when he bought it and had the glass of wine with him and stuff. But he has a nice unit, but it took him himself almost 18 months after the closing to finish his own unit. So maybe the lesson there is uh, tough negotiations don't necessarily create enemies if you're drinking wine. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> drinking no, wine no, it, well, it's, it's win-win. And, and, and again, negotiations always happen at a point in time, right? And at a certain situation. And we, we have had, had that happen with, with many of our buildings or mobile home parks we bought. We, we, we write an offer. We think this is a good price. Here's the built-in offer. And the guy says, no, it's way too low. I'm, I'm not taking that offer. Okay, fine. That's, that's the best price. We think the building is or the house is, is worth X. And they say, no, it's worth X plus 20%. Well, to me, it's not. Okay, fine. So it's no deal. And guess what? 
all of a sudden we get a call like a year later. Say, oh, you know, that offer you wrote a year ago, how about we're going to rewrite this offer now, right? Well, guess what? Maybe the offer is now not X. Maybe it's only 0.9 of X, right? Yeah. But, but we've done several buildings where all of a sudden the seller realizes it, what the price actually is or his life situation has changed. Maybe he got divorced. Maybe his wife died. All of a sudden there's a partnership dispute. So, so deals sometimes happen not because the market has per se changed, but because the seller, his life circumstances mm-hmm. have changed. All of a sudden that makes a motivated seller. So in the ideal world, you're looking for the right market, which is an up market, and the right deal, which is you know slightly below market, but also you're looking for a motivated seller. And that you don't know because often you don't see the seller. You, you, you deal often to realtors. Um, sometimes you are able to actually negotiate face-to-face, and I've done some deals in Edmonton face-to-face with the, with the seller, and we had some amazing deals. Um, but that's often not the case. So you've got to just put your best foot forward and be prepared to walk away. If you think that I think it's worth X and he wants more than X, well, then just walk, right? No, that's definitely great advice. So maybe, uh, Thomas, as just kind of a final question, what, what's your take on kind of the, the long-term outlook of the city of Vancouver? And, and are you bullish on, on the market long-term? Yeah, I'm absolutely bullish on the market long-term because Vancouver is a great place to live. I mean, where, can, where in the world can you go sailing in the morning um, and skiing in the afternoon and go to the opera in the evening and all with public transit? There's very few cities in the world where you can do that. Right. Um, I came to Vancouver the first time in 1983 after a three-day bus ride from Toronto. Um, I ended up staying at the youth hostel down in Jericho, not knowing that you know, I'm going to live now, just a few blocks away, actually, up the hill here at UBC. And I thought, this is just amazing. You look at the beach, you look at the water, you look at the, you look at the mountains, and you know, it's like, this is unbelievable. And today you have even more attraction. You have theaters. You have, you got you got uh, you know fine dining. You you got uh, you know ski resorts. So I think that combination, and you got a fairly safe political environment. There's no no violence. I mean, there's some violence, but compared to other cities, it's it's a fairly safe city. Right. And that that's attractive to many people, not just Canadians, obviously, but people from from the states, and certainly people from Asia, or people from Eastern Europe, or people from from Africa or South America which are not used to this kind of stability, right? And the prices, while high, aren't really all that different from other cities in the world. I mean, I, I lived in Munich for many years. You, you talked to a friend just the other day to buy some, perhaps a condo for his kids, the similar age of my kids in their so late 20s. I mean, you want to buy a decent condo in, in Munich, it's the same price as here. And like a thousand bucks a foot is completely normal there, right? And and you want to be in a nice area with, you know, close to shopping and parks and it's fifteen hundred bucks a foot, like, like just like here. I mean, you go to same to Boston, you go to New York, San Francisco, other big cities like London, Paris, Madrid. Even I mean, nice cities, you pay high prices. So I think Vancouver isn't all that much out of line, and we have no more land, right? We have mountains, we got water. Any development in Vancouver essentially is a brownfield development. We have to take something down to build something new. So we will have fewer and fewer single-family houses because they're going to take them down and now they're putting up you know, four-story, six-story, 20-story buildings. Right. Um, so therefore, single-family house prices will, will remain very high and will go up, probably more so than condos. Um, but you look at the region, because Vancouver proper is very small. It's not even a million people, right? 
But you look at the region, it's two and a half million and going to go to four to five million people over the next 30, 40 years. Um, that to me means prices have to go up because people, not every person wants to live in, in, in Delta or in, in, in you know, Langley. It's too far out. But mm -hmm. some people do and that's fine. But you can get decent prices in Langley or Delta or Surrey and they will always be lower than Vancouver. But you want to live close to the beach. You want to live close to the mountains in West Van, North Van, Kits, you know, Dunbar. I mean, prices will be high. So I think Absolutely, long-term, I'm very bullish on Vancouver and the whole region. Certainly, short-term, we have a sort of a, a mild correction, a mild resetting to normal, mainly government-induced with taxes, and we're going to see possibly higher taxes in, in going forward. So government is trying to get their pound of flesh. But you look at the, the DCCs you pay and CICs and building permit fees and the delays, I mean, construction costs are very high in Vancouver, right? And that's why you don't see anything new under 1,000 bucks a foot. In Vancouver, nothing. Right? Even if the land was free, still would be a thousand bucks a foot. And land is not free, right? Land currently is between two hundred and five hundred bucks per buildable foot in Vancouver, right? So, therefore, anything new today is twelve hundred, thirteen hundred bucks a foot and up. Um, and I think that will not change much. So we see less construction right now because they want to see their pre-sales go through. But I think long term we will see slightly up price and not, not perhaps the crazy 10% year over year returns but 2, 3, 4% a year I think we're going to go back to a more normal incline uh, as we go forward because it's such a great place to live and we have an immigration of 1% and that I think will also not change so NBC is certainly unlike let's say Saskatchewan or northern Manitoba or, or rural Newfoundland is just a more attractive place to live than in these frigid climates where I escaped from as well. And many Albertans <laughs> want to retire here and, you know, because the weather is just better, you know. I, I think those are all really good points. I think the best argument is just looking out your window yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what it has to offer. Yeah, yeah. And, and in the winter, it's, it is green here too, right? And, and I mean, I like, I like the color white in the winter, but it's better be a, a, a white sandy beach somewhere, you know? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> or even white on those mountaintops we're looking at. Yeah. <laughs> um, we do have this segment called the Five Wire, Thomas. Can you stick around for that? Five quick questions about Vancouver? Sure. Or can we stick around for that, I should say? Uh, <laughs> Uh, question number one: What is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? I like UBC actually, where I live. It's it's, it's a very walkable community, um, and while it's getting denser, and while it's while it's on on leased land, so the, all the condos built on UBC are ninety nine year leases. It is it is a very quiet, walkable neighborhood, very close to parks and beaches, and you can we often go for a walk to Granville Island. It's a you know it's a two hour walk and there's car to go here and Evo and and it's 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 very close to Vancouver and very green and and close to beaches. I, I love I love the UBC area. Favorite bar or restaurant, or the best German food in town? Well, they just opened the best German uh, German uh, uh, beer fest like uh, patio I think in on Granville. I haven't been there though. I like uh, La Brasse on tenth. Oh. Which is uh, in uh, in West Point Grey here. Right. So it, it, used, it used to be uh, Provence. Now it's called La Brasse. It's kind of French inspired fusion. It's it's really good, reasonably priced. Huh. Do you ever, do you ever go to Provence in Yaletown? I've been there. Yes, that's nice too. Yeah. 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 Um, where do you bring someone from out of town? The first place you bring them. Usually, I bring them to the pier in uh, at Jericho Sailing Club. And sometimes it's taken right from the airport to the pier because you can go for a walk and you get a 360 
or 270 view of, of, of Vancouver. So to, to, to me, Vancouver is the whole English Bay Area. Right. So West Van, so kids, you know, Stanley Park, uh, downtown, Falls Creek, and, and Jericho, kids, that, that whole bay, to me, that is sort of quintessential Vancouver. And, all, and you can walk along the seawalk for like 35 kilometers. Right. But that pier at, at Jericho, you can go out there and, and you look, especially at night, you see all the lights, you know, from West Van all the way to downtown and all the high rises and all the darkness of, towards UBC. I think it's a very interesting spot to, to take visitors on the, for the first time. That's a good one. I was at Spanish Banks on the, on the weekend. This is, yes. that, that view is unreal. Yes, it's just below here. And when, because I, I ride a yellow Vespa, so whenever I go to downtown, I always take the road down here, always along Spanish banks. It's beautiful. All right. Uh, question four. If you could give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, it's one of the lessons in my book is uh, buy the biggest house you can afford. Now, that what you can afford is... is Depends on your pocketbook and maybe maybe your parents, but in, in most markets in Canada, the price, the market is going up. Real estate and makes more sense. It makes sense to live in, in your own investment than just buying stocks, let's say, right? And and opposed to pay, paying uh, a landlord. So if you can afford, buy something, especially if you know you're going to be in a place for four or five years. So when our kids, for example, went to to Edmonton to the university, and we knew it was at least four years. Plus our daughter, another year, so it was about five years. We actually bought a condo for five years, and that was a good investment. They lived there, and because you had to live somewhere anyway, and you know, that's, then they sold it. And you know, that that makes sense if if you if you have the wherewithal. Now, not every person has that, but you have to pick your parents carefully. <laughs> <laughs> and and a final question: What is something you've bought? recently for under $500 that's had a, a positive impact on your life? And it could be anything, a gadget, a, a book, anything. A book, 80 lessons learned, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to buy that. I, I, I like experiences. We did, I did a gross grind the other day. That was like a $20, I think, uh, tram ticket. So that, that's, a, that's an experience. We haven't yeah. had an experience yet. We did have you, not had an experience. Did you see Chip Wilson on the grind? I did not. No. Did not. <laughs> <laughs> wow! And was it uh, was it as hard as everyone says? I'm I'm a guy who's uh, never. You've done it once, I, and you I, nearly died. I well, no. I I the thing that was really tough on me was when I thought I was nearing the end, and then I saw the one quarter sign yeah. posted. <laughs> that w- that broke me down. And then it was just I, I was, uh, I was, sobbing. I, I, I was about and to, I was about to say the same thing because I thought, well, this is a this is a tough. Well, this is now I know it's called grass grind. Man, this is really steep. And then the sign came up and said, oh, this is the easy part. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to try the There's the other uh, longer trail, I think, BC something, BCM kind of trail, which is a sm- uh, sl- it ends at the same spot, but, but it's it slightly, slightly more undulating. I'm going to try that next time. Yeah. But, the, but the view is amazing. And, and uh, I've been there many years ago, like maybe 20 years ago, at, at sunset. That's actually a great spot to go at sunset because... Um, that, that's one of the things I love about this condo we live in, but also Vancouver in general. You get these amazing sunsets. Right, right. And uh, once you're at Grouse Mountain, and you have those, one of those kind of sky-filled um, days where the, the sky is actually orange, it looks just amazing from, 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 from uh, Grouse Mountain, actually. No kidding. Well, thanks, thanks so much, Thomas, for your time. That was a, a fascinating conversation. We'll have to have you back if you have the time. And how can people find out more about prestigious properties? 
and other stuff. Well, if you Google on. my name, Thomas Bayer, there's you know there's fairly few in Canada, but that names you find me and uh, PressProp.com, P-R-E-S-T. And it's B. It's B E Y. ER though, yeah. right? Yeah. Correct. Well, thanks again, Thomas. And um, as I say, auf Wiedersehen. Which means <laughs> until I see you again. <laughs> So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Thomas Beyer, president of Prestigious Properties. I should say, Matt, we really enjoyed talking to Thomas, but also we really enjoyed hanging out in Thomas's uh, pad. Man, we'll have that, to have him uh, back on. And by a, back on, hopefully he has us over again. Yeah, that's, that's the big thing. <laughs> Every time you want to hang out with just an, in, in an exceptional condo. Yeah, uh, and, and, and he's a really compelling guy. I super mean, compelling guy, uh, super fun to chat with, and also, but we can't understate, like, Man, like thousand square foot terrace, like the, <laughs> no. The, I thought you were going to talk about his storied career. No, I'm, I'm, I'm. Well, yeah, that too. But I mean, you know, it's it's clear that he went to eighty million based on his place, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty good. And pretty and good. I, just not to keep beating a dead horse here, Matt, but the uh, the like forty feet of European folding doors. Oh yeah, <laughs> or what? Yeah, that yeah. was like insane, right? Yeah. No, it's. Uh, if you want to see a photo of us in front of Thomas's uh, beautiful, oh, right, terrace, we did get a photo. That's right on our Instagram account Van- at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Um, we we did it for the gram. That's and right. We continue to do it for the gram. So check us out on Instagram. What else do we have, Matt? We got the draw. We got the draw. So we're gonna announce the first winner. The first winner. Drum roll, secret. Chris McPhee. Chris McPhee. That's phenomenal. That is right. Hey, congratulations, Chris. We will drop off a copy of the book to you. You just have to get in touch with us, and we'll make sure you got it. But we should repeat, if you reviewed us and you didn't win today, never fear, because every week moving forward for the foreseeable future... Right. We are going to be giving another signed copy of Vancouverism away. So if you haven't reviewed us yet, head over to Google, Google Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. On the right-hand side, you'll see our faces where you can write a review on Google, and you will be added in the draw. We appreciate the support. And Matt, but, but maybe read Chris's review because it's, it's such a nice review. Oh, it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, here, read, read his review. Chris McPhee wrote, five stars. Good hosts, solid production, great guests, very earworthy. The only podcast I listen to where I haven't missed an episode, besides Radiolab and a few others. So really, there's a lot of podcasts that he's a completist on, and we're not that unique. That's, that's what I read there. But we, we appreciate the review, Chris. Great review. Thank you so much for the review. Keep them coming, guys. There's more books on the way. What else do we got, Adam? We got VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. One of my favorite websites, Matt, where you have resources like private client services. And let me just say, Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. It's basically realtor-level information. It's at your fingertips. It's free at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. You really should be using this tool if you're looking for Vancouver real estate or even real estate throughout BC because it is the best thing out there. We've tried them all and uh, sign up for your free account. If you're not using PCS to search Vancouver real estate, you're doing it wrong. We also got the live wire. We're sending out deals. We're sending out an assignment today. Right. 
that is exceptional value. So exceptional. if you're not on the under live 800 wire, a foot, under, under 750, under a foot. 720 a foot. Let's wow. be clear. Under Concrete, 719 a foot, I think. I, th- I think it comes in at about 717 ask. This is <laughs> exceptional value, no Brand matter how product. you slice it. Uh, so sign up to the live wire where you're going to get weekly updates. You're going to get deal of the month. You're going to get deals during the week, assignments that are not on MLS. This is your place for all things Vancouver real estate. If you want to talk about that, reviews, Vancouverism, anything real estate related or anything at all, give me a call, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secrets going line. Info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And I'm not sure where secret is, but if I was a betting man, it would be, uh, he's probably at Rec Beach, tops on, pants off. Uh, <laughs> it, it is, is summertime. It, it is sunny out, yeah. <laughs> Have a good week, guys. <laughs> Take care. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join. 
type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join typing in VRP 2020.